Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I am live, as always, from John Favreau's living room. Uh, Leo is here. Pundit is here. Love it is here. Yo. <laughs> they will not be on today's episode. This week, I sat down with Heather Higginbottom, who is a longtime friend of the pod. Uh, she was the Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources, but she's a really interesting background in foreign policy because she came from doing domestic policy on the Hill. She was a campaign aide for President Obama, for Senator Kerry, and, and worked on a number of races, most of them with us. And her trajectory into working in foreign policy was very similar to mine. So I think you guys will be fascinated by her journey, impressed with what she's done, and will really enjoy the conversation. I am here with Heather Higginbottom, who's been my friend for a very long time. And Heather, I'm just going to read through your resume real quick, because the theme of this show is I get to talk to people who are smarter than me, and they get to listen. Uh Um, Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources, Counselor to the U.S. State Department, Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget, Deputy Domestic Policy Council Director, Legislative Director for John Kerry. I'm just going to leave it there, because I know you did all these campaigns and stuff, but that's a pretty good run. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This is great. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Um, (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you because the whole goal of the show is to help people get that they can understand and be a part of foreign policy and national security and is not reserved for PhDs or just like Fareed Zakaria. Yes, we're geeks and we get excited, but all you have to do is care and decide you want to be involved and you can be a part of these debates. And so what I think is so cool about your career is that you started as a policy person in the Senate, but you really cut your teeth on doing political campaigns. And I'm wondering if you tell us a little bit about some of those races, some of the <laughs> some of the dark days from 2004, 2008, anywhere in between. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting is not only did I cut myself, my uh, really get, <laughs> cut myself, get, <laughs> get going on the Hill, but it was all about domestic policy. You yeah. know, like I'd get to the foreign policy, the world affairs part of the, the paper, and I'd think, okay, that's not part of my job. Right. You know, and I look back now, especially in the last four years, and I'm like, this is not just part of my job. This is part of who I am. Yeah. This is a part of who we need to be. And so it all started in that experience of being on the Hill and really becoming aware that you can influence policy and be a part of the conversation. And then the opportunity to join John Kerry's presidential campaign. And suddenly you're elevated from a narrow issue area in the Senate, which it was still amazing. But now you're like really shaping policy for an entire campaign. And the biggest thing about that, and it was certainly true in the Obama campaign, is suddenly you're all about about communicating to the American people in a very important way. And so right. when you're in the Senate, it's about like policy and like tweaking bills and getting the right you know, legislation done. And then suddenly you're talking about policy as a way to communicate to the American people. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's what was so exciting about being on a presidential campaign was saying, OK, these are things that are important. And now we get to really tell you why right. and right. why you should care about but, it and, you and were, why we should connect about it. And you were policy director on both those races? Deputy on Kerry's Deputy and policy Kerry. director on Obama's. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, what's so interesting about these campaigns is like the foreign policy, like most campaigns are won or lost on economic policy, right? Or really, let's be honest, like character issues, bullshit totally. about your emails, like whether you got a private server. That's the number one issue in the hearts of Americans is, is Swift Gmail. Boats. Yeah, Swift boats. Right. But the foreign policy issues that break through tend to be so narrow, right? Like it's like war for or against, big deal, obviously, funding for the war, Benghazi. I'm just wondering, now that you've done all these races and you did the State Department and the White House, like... Do you have a sense of how we could maybe try to have a smarter conversation about these things? You know, I've thought about this a lot. I think, first of all, the first, you have to think about how you're reaching people. What conversation mm-hmm. are you having with people? You know, when you're just doing, you know, as Barack Obama would say, who's up, who's down? You know, if you're just in that back and forth on politics, you're not talking to people. You're not reaching them. So for me, the political conversation starts with how do you really have a dialogue? And then once you get into that dialogue, you can talk about like, what does it mean to protect this country? What does it mean to advance America's you know role in the world? And what does it mean to um, be the leader in preventing and eradicating HIV AIDS globally? And you start reaching people. But it's hard to get to that point in a political dialogue because so often it's scoring points. And mm-hmm. that was, I think, particularly in the Obama campaign, such a big lesson of like, it's not just you have the right policy. It's not just, you know, what's your communications plan? Like, do you have the way to reach people to actually have a conversation? And I think once you get to that point, when you're really talking about, you know, 
What do people care about? How, what, do, what do they see as the reflection of themselves in their politics? Then you can talk about foreign policy and these issues. But beyond that, it really is like almost like a litmus test, which doesn't get beyond, you know, really like who's up or who's down. Mm-hmm. So you moved over to state in 2013, right, mm-hmm. to become counselor, Secretary Kerry. Did you feel armed and ready from your White House experience, you know, on the experience? Or did you feel like a fraud like I did when you know, I walked into the NSC meetings? It's so and- funny. So I, when Kerry asked me to come over, it was a kind of a strange time because I had this important, significant role at OMB. And he said, you know, come to st- the State Department and just help me figure out this transition. And I thought, well, I have the Senate confirmed job and mm-hmm. I help write the budget and I'm in all the policy conversations. But he was pretty persuasive. And one of the things that persuaded me personally was I'd, I'd been in a, a meeting maybe the year before and I was it was a deputies meeting at the National Security Council and it had to do with Egypt and, you know, the fallout of what was going on mm-hmm. after the Arab Spring and how we would provide resources. That's why I was there from mm-hmm. the foreign assistance side. And our ambassador, so all the, it was actually a principal's meeting and uh, Secretary Clinton was there, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you know, SecDef, everybody was there. And our ambassador to Egypt, Ann Patterson, was up on the screen. She was a badass. Badass. And still I'm, is a badass. <laughs> still is a badass. She retired, but she's still a badass in retirement. But I remember watching her up on the screen, and she's reporting, ah, I got to talk to so-and-so. They're kind of storming this place. The yeah. embassy's secure, but this is our take, and this is what we should do. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm so lucky that I've had the opportunity to work in the White House on domestic policy and economic policy and budget policy. But, man, maybe I really missed out on foreign policy. This is so exciting. And then two years later, I'm walking in with the Secretary of State to help him run the place. (laughs) And yeah, yeah, I felt like a fraud completely. And the only things that gave me real confidence was that like, I knew I was there because I knew John Kerry and I knew the White House, I knew Barack Obama. And my job was to help put all those pieces together. Right, right, right. I think I was in that meeting. She was like essentially barricaded (laughs) in the embassy with like millions of people marching. I remember walking up being like, how is she not scared shitless? And I was like, oh, wait, she was ambassador to Pakistan, I believe. And she was just like, so this is what we're going to do. And this is who I'm going to talk to. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Yeah. Whereas we would all be like, "Uh, no, let's go home. (laughs) I would do anything that woman told me to do. I'd be like, okay, we're good. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you got promoted. Mm-hmm. to the Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources. You know, back to the sort of idea of process and management and like making things actually work. Can you tell us a little bit about what that job entails? So it's it's a unique role across the federal agencies. The State Department is the only department that has had two deputies. And it, it doesn't seem likely that Secretary Tillerson is going to fill the role that I that I held, which I think is too bad, not because it has anything to do with myself, but because the State Department has a completely complex platform of 270 posts around the world where we have our diplomats and our locally engaged staff where we're executing our mission. I mean, in almost every single country, there's just a few countries mm-hmm. we can't or aren't in. And you have security, you have operational aspects of that. Um, we issue all the passports, all the visas. We, admi- we, we admit, or I should say past tense. It's only been a few weeks. I know. We <laughs> okay. administer the, used to it. the refugee admissions program. I mean, not mm-hmm. to mention the day-to-day diplomacy. I mean, it is a huge mission. And you also have uh, a department in which the secretary is traveling, you know, constantly. Certainly Secretary Kerry was, Secretary Clinton did. That's the model. And the, and the other deputy has major uh, travel responsibilities, mm-hmm. diplomatic responsibilities, as did I. And so um, really my job was to make sure this complex platform could function well but also that we were improving and becoming more efficient and more effective, that we had a very good, you know, big part of my role was to oversee our $50 billion budget. So wow. that included $30 billion in foreign assistance, everything we did around the world, but making sure we were executing in a way that continually um, just extended our impact and our reach in a world that is more and more complex to operate in. Um, so I did a lot of stuff internally. I looked, you know, paid a lot of attention to what was going on uh, overseas at our posts and was able to focus a lot on development issues and, and that, you know, ranged from our HIV AIDS programs to our refugee work. And um, it's unique, but I actually think for the State Department, it's a really important role. So I'm, I'm sorry they're, they're not likely to, to fill it in this moment, but 
um, I think that it made the department a much uh, more responsive place to things like, you know, embassy security and yeah. and Freedom of Information Act requests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a sense <laughs> that they're going to learn very quickly that having competent people in place at senior levels is not yeah. – it is essential. It is not a luxury. It is essential. Totally. Um, you mentioned refugees, and there's been a lot of discussion in the news lately about refugees. What's unfortunate, I think, is it's almost always in the context of terrorism. I mean, it sort of paints all refugees as, as potential terrorists, which misses the point. I think that we're a nation of immigrants. We are at our best when we care for people in need. You spend a lot of time working on these issues at state, including you actually helped quarterback a summit with President Obama on refugee issues. Was that at the UN? Yeah, it was on the margins of the UN General Assembly, yeah. I wonder if you could tell us about that experience, like people you met, because I, I, I don't know. I just want people to understand why we do this. Mm-hmm. You know, today I was reading the paper and there was this, I think, rather extraordinary full page ad in the Washington Post that was taken out by evangelical leaders from all 50 states, leading evangelical leaders, basically urging the president and the vice president to be on the side of refugees. Hmm. And that speaks to the tradition in this country of faith-based organizations leading the effort to um, support and assimilate refugees into our country. And in this rather extraordinary full-page ad, they talked about, of course, Christians overseas have been persecuted, but so have Muslims and so have people of no faith. And it is our role and it is our tradition and it is our history to help those people. And, you know, to me, the very jarring aspect of the transition between President Obama and President Trump on refugees is that President Obama led a global effort to get other countries to to live up to the tradition Mm -hmm. of the United States of America, Mm -hmm. to welcome the most vulnerable, to provide humanitarian assistance, to look for opportunities to provide people who are permanently or, you know, for a very significant amount of time displaced with educational and employment opportunities to just to, to, to live up to their potential, which is a tradition of this country. And within days of this presidency, we are questioning whether that is who we are. Yeah. And that's why I am heartened by the protests we've seen at airports and around the country because you see people saying, no, that is how we are. That is who we are. And not just from, you know, people maybe who who would have supported Secretary Clinton or who didn't support uh, President Trump, but from Christian conservatives, from people of all faiths. There's a network of 350 organizations around this country whose mission it is to resettle refugees. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is incredible. Right. They are in every state. They're in so many metropolitan areas. They come together in faith communities. They sponsor families. They outfit apartments. They get cribs. They help people enroll in schools. They learn languages. And what President Obama did with the Refugee Summit was get over 50 nations to do more, mm-hmm. resettle refugees, give more money, provide those opportunities. And he was leading a global response. And because we're in the, the, the most critical refugee crisis since at least the Second World War, we need a leader like that. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was hard to get all of the different agencies of government to reach the goals that he set for us. And it was very difficult for the State Department to do the diplomacy to get so many other countries to go further. But we did it. And we we really exceeded the goals that the president set for us. And it's, you know, it's really painful to think that we would in some way backtrack from that. And it's painful in the aggregate when you just think of the numbers. But when you meet people, you know, I was in uh, Lesbos, Greece, which is an island where a Mm -hmm. lot of migrants come, refugees come from Turkey. And I met with folks in a processing center who um, were hoping to emigrate to lots of different places. And I met with this one man and his wife and his children had all been murdered and he was alone and he had to leave because he was he had nowhere to go and he didn't necessarily want to come to the United States. He just wanted to be safe. And that is the kind of sanctuary this country has provided. And so, you know, it's really jarring to go from having a president who is saying to the world, this is our moment to step up to a president who's saying our doors are closed. I don't think it's a partisan statement to say we should have more empathy for others and at least try to talk about that element of this crisis because, you know, 
if you were upset and you cried when you saw that picture of a little boy dead on the beach in, in Greece or in Turkey or you can't even look at that picture. It's it's he looks just like my son. I I literally can't look at that picture. Devastating. It is devastating. And so for people listening who might genuine who I would never criticize someone for being concerned about terrorism. You are well within your right. And we and we as government former government officials should be worried about that too. But you know, I'm wondering what, you know, someone who's an expert in this, I wonder what you could tell them about the vetting process or the general approach that might give them some, make them feel better. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely sympathetic to people who say, man, that sounds scary, you know, yeah. let's not have people come in. I remember during, there was a, a period a couple of years ago when a lot of governors were saying they were going to take their states out of the refugee resettlement program. And we were very engaged at the State Department in educating governors and members of Congress and the general public about the vetting process. And I saw on my Facebook page this woman I went to high school with who was a really lovely person, very compassionate, and she'd posted something, you know, I feel terrible myself, but I'm scared and I don't want these people coming to my town. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, boy, that encapsulates the fear that I think is is real and genuine and we have to answer. And I did respond to her and I responded to her in the same way that we did with members of Congress and we were in this uh, – all senator briefing. It's the most incredible one I've ever been to. I think every senator was there except for those who are running for president, Rubio and Cruz and others. And we went through it. We said, you know, refugees are the most thoroughly vetted of any travelers to the United States of America. Period. Period. <laughs> Globally, only 1% of refugees are resettled in a third country. Wow. The United States of America has prioritization for who we bring here. Mm -hmm. They are women and children. They are people who are ill or have been persecuted. Uh, They are not generally men of fighting age who come here. You know, it is, so you're already taking this large population, you're skinning it way down, and then you're taking the most vulnerable populations. And then you are subjecting them to an 18 to 24 month long process that is incredibly rigorous. They start with a UN screening process, then a US screening process, then an interview, um, biometric. They go through a multi-agency background check that involves nearly every part of- The FBI, of the National Counterterrorism Center. Yeah, it's not just squishy eggheads at state, right? It, this every, is some like nail-biting intel guys. Or every agency in the, I, in the in- intelligence community who has a database is involved in this process. And let me tell you something. The people at the State Department, and this is certainly true for, for the intelligence community, but I'll speak uh, for, the, for the State Department, the people who run this program, the last thing on earth they want is for somebody to get into this country with right. malintent because they know it would have the impact of shutting the program down. Right. And the, the members of the intel community who do this work, that is their job. Their job is to keep dangerous people out of this country. So I'd argue that we have extreme vetting now, but there's not any fiber in my being or anyone else who's worked on this issue who, if someone said, I have another idea for a database to check or a process to do, who would say, we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we really, when we look at this, we look at this closely, we say we're doing everything we know how to do. And by the way, it's working. We've never had an attack or a potential attack, despite what you've read, maybe, um, there's been some alleged massacres, yeah. <laughs> um, but but it hasn't happened. So, right. you know, it is really a, a, a misguided discussion, but there's real fear and that has to be addressed. And there's real facts out there. And I think it's hard for people to hear those because there's so much noise, you mm-hmm. know, but it, it, it's important to try to communicate right. that. So emotional. You're listening to Pod Save the World. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Movement Watches was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 1 million watches sold to customers in 160-plus countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. Every member of the Crooked Media team has Movement Watch, and I can tell you that they look great. They fit well. They look good. You're going to love them. Movement Watches start at just $95. At a department store, you're looking at like four or 500 bucks a piece. The team at Movement Watches figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman and the retail markup and provide you with the best possible price. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmtwatches.com slash crookedworld. That's mvmtwatches.com slash crookedworld. Join the movement. Pod Save the World is also brought to you by Squarespace. If you've ever tried to start your own website, you know what a hassle it can be. 
especially if you don't know what you're doing. Make your next move, make your next website with Squarespace. You can create a beautiful website with Squarespace's all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Squarespace provides award-winning 24-7 customer support and will help you get your own custom domain with an experience that's fully transparent and simple to set up. Make your next move, lock down your domain, and create a website to launch that idea. Use offer code SAVETHEWORLD for 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. That's save the world for 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain with Squarespace. I learned a very cool term recently, which is a dissent channel. There is a report, you know, obviously President Trump has put forward a, a ban of Muslims from seven countries. You call um, it a ban. It's a ban. Yeah, <laughs> you called it a ban. But there was some reports that there's something called the dissent channel at the State Department, which is an opportunity for State Department employees to offer a view that disagrees with the secretary or the leadership of the time. They don't get in trouble. They, people read it. it. It's their sort of avenue, which is very cool, frankly, and, and should be replicated across government, uh, in my opinion. But I'm wondering, you know, what you make of those reports, if, if what you make of the dissent channel, or I don't know, it just it's such a fascinating thing. It is that fascinating. You know, I so I learned about it when I was at the State Department because it is unique in government. Right. No other agency has it. And I do think it would be healthy to have it in yeah. some other agencies. It's ballsy. Uh, like you're wrong, it, boss. It is, you know. And and look, the State Department is the most hierarchical place, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the federal government, perhaps, right? And so for somebody to be able to say, I disagree and this message is going to get to the Secretary of State, it is a big deal. So it's not used. You know, it's not like people do this every day. Right. 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 So when I was at the State Department with Secretary Kerry, there was a dissent channel cable about our Syria policy. Hmm. It was signed by 51 members of the Foreign Service, which was the second largest before the thousand plus who just signed the most recent one. (laughs) And, you know, Secretary Kerry took that very seriously. He respected it. I mean, he, you know, he cut his teeth in politics by protesting the Vietnam War that he had fought in. So he certainly understood the importance of hearing from people in these positions. He convened a meeting with these folks and he heard them out and he explained, you know, the policy and talked about it. It was really, really important. And what I think is very significant about the dissent channel cable uh, about the about the Muslim ban is that you saw such a widespread uh, endorsement of the position. People who really felt like it was more important to weigh in against this policy than it was to be concerned about having signed on. And then the response from the White House was disconcerting. Right. It basically said, if you don't like the policy, like you can, you know, you can leave. And if you lost a thousand foreign service officers with the amount of experience that people who signed that cable had, you know, our diplomacy and our national security would really be at risk. So my hope is that, you know, that was just a reaction. Secretary Tillerson will come in. This will be a channel that's respected because it's important to keep people on board. And part of keeping them on board is giving them an opportunity to express their right. views. I mean, you said something that, that I, I think people don't realize about the State Department in particular is how many people who were work there are career foreign service officers who have served Republicans, who've served Democrats, who will be there when we showed up and will be there long after we're gone. How do you go from an Obama administration employee to a Trump administration? I mean, are you hearing from people that they have whiplash? You know, so interesting. So even, you know, even before the election, just maybe because my, you know, my horizon was the end of the Obama administration and the end of Kerry's tenure, I was very focused on transition. And some of the career foreign service officers that I served with said, you know, we're kind of used to transition. Mm -hmm. You know, we go back and forth. We do this. We sign up for this life. You know, we've signed up for this agency. We serve overseas. We we, are here in Washington. We're all around the world. We're used to this, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Foreign policy is not political. Yeah, you have different positions, but this is about the United States role in the world. Um, This was different. This was definitely different. And I think it was different in part because the transition itself was a little abnormal. You know, it's I think it's safe to say that they weren't expecting to take over. And so they're a little bit behind the ball. And that's okay, you know. I think anybody in their position might have been. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the, the Secretary Tillerson didn't come into the building until the day that he was confirmed. He didn't meet with John Kerry. Really? I think that is. It's crazy. I think it's insane. You know, I mean. Why not get I have, Trump met with Obama? I, it's like, so the transition landing teams would come around and meet with us and sort of take notes and so forth. But um, it's like they didn't 
they were afraid we might be contagious or something. I don't know. I mean, it was very strange. Um, so I think for people within the building who are used to transition, who are a little jarred by the tone of the president-elect and then the president about um, U.S. foreign policy and our mm-hmm. role in the world, were even more disconcerted by the fact that this wasn't a transition that you could really understand. You couldn't right. get to know the people. You couldn't do your briefing in a way that might resonate with the secretary just to tell him what's going on. Like, I guarantee you, if President Trump uh, had known about the deal with Australia, which I helped negotiate, right. on the refugees, <laughs> right. uh, he would have had a different reaction. He might not have embraced it. but he might he not have shouted down the prime minister. He might have known that was coming in the conversation, <laughs> right? Like, there's just no way. It's just bad staff work, it's by the way. bad. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's sort together. of, it's inconceivable to think that that wasn't going to come up or that that he didn't have that paper in front of him. And it's not because, I mean, I, I guarantee there's like 18 papers that people wrote at the State Department, like making sure that he could have been aware of that, but they didn't know. And all the, you know, but if you had a transition that was trying to make sure all this was seamless mm-hmm. and a White House that was receptive to it, I think that would have been really yeah. maybe better handled. So back to the <laughs> to the Foreign Service, I think that, you know, they're, they're, they're encouraged by the tone that Secretary Tillerson is taking. And the fact that he has an appreciation for um, what a, what at least a global company has to have right. role they play that that is not dissimilar. It is different, but it is not dissimilar to having a, a global U.S. perspective. Mm-hmm. But they're they're jarred by what's happened yeah. over the last two to three weeks. Um, and the other thing that you know, I just when I leave the State Department, I'm I'm very uh, humbled by the sacrifices that diplomats make, and I feel like. It's something that's very underappreciated, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a um, you know so people have this impression of diplomats being wine sipping kind of you know erudite, yeah, and a lot of people are are uh, you know extremely smart and talented and the cream of the crop. But these are people who are going to war zones. Yep. They're separated from their families. They're hauling their kids all around the world into you know sort of questionable schools. They're Women and men who are who are potentially, um, you know, separated from their their spouses, and it's real sacrifice. And they do it because they understand these are the building blocks to peace and to forging, you know, a stronger U.S. national security and foreign policy. Um, and I'm I really am changed by having served with those people. Mm-hmm. Real sacrifice and real risk, and they do it unarmed. Um, That's right. And we need to take care of them. You talked about the global nature of the of the job you had and of the department. The tough thing about being the the United States is there's a global crisis. You're in charge, right? You had to lead global responses to two terrifying pandemic diseases, starting with Ebola. How in the world do you begin to figure out how to lead a crisis of something like Ebola? And and how infuriating is it when you see your own media and your own government making it harder by demagoguing these things? Yeah. Well, so I had the the lead role at the State Department for our response, but it was a multi-agency response. But, you know, I think we created an opening, frankly, because the multilateral institutions like the World Health Organization and and other groups, we didn't respond. The U.S. government didn't respond initially as well as we needed to. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you something. Once the United States government got itself together, in other words, we understood how we would work and what we would do and that it was going to require our leadership and we weren't going to depend on other institutions to lead – I've never seen anything like it for everyone from the U.S. military to the Centers for Disease Control, obviously to the folks at uh, USAID who do so much of the incredible work on on the ground, to the work at the State Department that was um, all about diplomacy and and getting other governments to respond. And we simply would not have contained Ebola without the United States of America. And heroic work. Heroic work. And and can you imagine is, being on the ground in in Western Africa during no. this? You know, I was it's funny, I was uh I was in Liberia in June of that year. So it was there was Ebola had had broken out, but it wasn't at its it really hit uh, in August. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't an issue people were really talking about in any sort of significant way. And so I was really consumed with, man, there's so many challenges in this country. Everything from how do you get, you know, they, they had this horrible civil war. So they're building all these schools, but they don't have teachers who are literate. You know, yeah. it was, everything was so overwhelming. And then Ebola hits and the public health infrastructure crumbles. People can't go to school. They can't even go to the schools where the teachers don't actually know how to read or write. You know, I mean, right. it's just devastating to this country. And without the United States of America and its partners, 
public, private, other governments, multilateral, but without, without our leadership, we wouldn't have contained that disease and they wouldn't now be starting forward again on that mm-hmm. path. And they had their own leadership and they were great partners within Liberia, but you know, it was essential for the U.S. to lead. And we had the only plane, the State Department had the only plane that could evacuate uh, health professionals from West Africa affected by, and we couldn't convince other health professionals, French speakers, mm-hmm. people from other countries to go if they didn't think they could get evacuated. Right. And we had one plane that could evacuate one person. And that was, it was incredible that we had that resource. It Mm -hmm. was in reserve, but we then took that and said, okay, this is a challenge. We partnered with the private sector, with a foundation. And just a couple of months ago, I went out and to Dulles as part of this exercise and they had the box. It's a a containerized biocontainment solution. It's not this box that can that can take four people from anywhere in the mm-hmm. world, load it into lots of different types of airplanes, have health professionals going in and out to treat them. And, you know, again, that's like that's the United States saying, this is a problem we saw with Ebola. We're ready for the next one. And I mean, that is really inspiring stuff. Yeah. God bless the people who are smart enough to invent those things. Yes. <laughs> it's like boggles your mind when you get into the details. Yeah. So, okay. So going from a crisis that got a lot of media attention and understandably scared the life out of people to, to Zika, which really frightens me because I feel like this hasn't gotten the attention it needs, not for lack of trying from the administration. But I, I think, you know, this could be a ticking time bomb where there's an untold cost for millions of babies and people around the world who are infected. What do you think people need to know and what could they do maybe in their own lives that could help get us ahead of the, the curve on this? Yeah. So, you know, with Zika, I remember, so Dr. Frieden, who was the head of the Centers for Disease Control, we were in a we were in a meeting and he said, He's, he's very intense and he's mm-hmm. super smart and he like drops all this medical knowledge and you're sort <laughs> of like, whoa. Um, and he said, you know, the difference between Ebola and Zika is that we had known unknowns with Ebola. We knew what we were trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. He said, with Zika, we have unknown unknowns. He said, we are learning more every day. We don't know what's coming next. We only know what we've seen so far and we are very cognizant of the fact that we're not sure where this thing is going. Mm-hmm. And that really scared me because yeah. I was I was pretty frightened um, during our Ebola, you know, medical briefings, not because I thought it was going to, you know, really hit the United States in quite the way that the press suggested. Right. By the way, I feel like we can't talk about Ebola without saying Ron Klain is a hero. Yes, he is. And the um, absolute, like, savior of um, – of West Africa for making the U.S. government function as well as it did yeah, to Ron, respond in the way it did. Ron Klain, who was, he was a longtime Biden aide, who's on every debate prep for Obama, was just a brilliant lawyer, uh, came in and, and just ran the report on the response. He's the, the one who made the U.S. government respond in the way it did to stop that. But in any event, he, on, we'll call him a friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. But he'll come. <laughs> I promise that. Cool. Um, okay. So Zika, you know, that was really chilling to me because we were doing everything that we knew how to do. Uh, or we are. I mean, I, I hope um, still. But it was, you know, whether it was vaccines or what kind of vector control that means, you know, either covering your body mm-hmm. or, or spraying and all these sorts of things and the sort of prevention. Um, but at the same time, we're not we're learning more about the disease, how it was transmitted, when you should travel, when you shouldn't. You know, it was really sort of chilling. And so I think I think you're exactly right. You know, you spend three weeks reading headlines in the paper predominantly about countries um, uh, in South America that are affected by this disease, but not fully appreciating the impact. Mm-hmm. And I think that while it, there, was a, there was a pretty um, moderate impact uh, domestically, like this isn't over. This no. is like an evil mosquito. Yeah. And we don't understand the disease. And so we can't, you know, we can't let the news cycles and the press attention guide science and resources and um, like sound public policy decisions. And that was one of the things that was really kind of concerning about Ebola, because if we had followed the direction of press attention, we would have, you know, or or U.S. panic. Right. We would have taken our eye off the ball. We would have right? shut down airports. We Precisely. would have had people lying and traveling. We would have done anything. States. We would have put all nothing. our energy there. We would have done yeah. anything. With Zika, you know, we have to keep that focus. And it's not just Zika. It's like how this mosquito will continue to... With climate change, you're going to see, you know, disease moving in different ways. You're going to see more urbanization 
mm-hmm. more concentration of people, disease spreading. So like we have to have these muscles flexing well, right? right? right. And, and they can't be driven by U.S. panic or right. fear. Right. The Zika virus, I think it would emerge in a jungle in the middle of Africa and somehow got connected to a mosquito native to yeah. Egypt and thanks and to global right. travel, now it's here. That's right. I mean, that's that's the nature of global travel. And yeah. and because we have these other kind of global trends, whether it's climate change or other, like it's going to keep happening right. more and more frequently. And so we can't just sort of be like, we only care when it's, you know, we think it might come to the United yeah. States because it, it can. And it, <laughs> All and these it, diseases can. And you shouldn't just care if you're a woman who's pregnant or thinking it you might get pregnant. Microcephaly right. might not be the end of the problem right. of the Zika. Because we're still learning. Unknown unknowns. You're geeking out with me on Pod Save the World. More on the way. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. I've been using Blue Apron for years, and that's because the food tastes great, it's fun and easy to do, and it's affordable. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious, home-cooked meals. You can choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Brew Apen's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash crookedworld. That's blueapron.com slash crookedworld. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash crookedworld. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Pod Save the World is also brought to you by Tommy John Underwear. Over the years, we upgrade so many things. Cars, phones, TVs. When was the last time you upgraded your underwear? Yeah, your underwear. I want to tell you about Tommy John. Not the surgery, the revolutionary men's underwear brand that has redefined comfort for guys everywhere, myself included. Love it is creeping over me during this ad. I just don't know why it's necessary to record the ad in your underwear. <laughs> each, pair, each pair is crafted from an ultra-lightweight fabric from maximum breathability. The legs never ride up, the waistband never rolls down. Tommy John's patented 21st century design even makes it impossible to get a wedgie. I find that hard to believe. Look, I've tried all kinds of different underwear brands trying to find the perfect fit. Tommy John's is simply the best there is, and they've got a lot more than unbelievable underwear. Their undershirts go on like a second skin and never come off untucked. Even their socks are engineered to stay up all day. And all of Tommy John's underwear is backed by the best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. Hurry to TommyJohn.com world to experience life-changing comfort and get 20% off your first order. That's TommyJohn.com slash world for 20% off your order. TommyJohn.com slash world. You're going to love it. You were the first woman to hold the position of Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources. And so first of all, congratulations. You're a badass and a role model for all the people listening. But second, while there are incredibly powerful women in foreign policy like Hillary Clinton, Susan Rice, Madeleine Albright, Lisa Monaco, I would say if you look across the totality of national security world, so states a little better, states like 40 some odd percent, but only 30 some odd percent in foreign senior foreign service, right? But if you look at state DOD, the intelligence community, women are underrepresented. Women are underrepresented on, on Pod Save the World right now. I'm working on that. That's more of a booking sequencing series for all <laughs> the people out there who are going to call me on this. But I'm wondering if you have a sense of why that is and what you tell young women listening about why they specifically are needed in these jobs. So the first thing I would say is, you know, for... In an Obama administration, in a Kerry Secretary of State, uh, as Secretary of State, um, it wasn't hard to get talented women who were powerful and qualified into key roles, right? Like they're out there, mm-hmm. right? Ann Patterson. <laughs> Ann Patterson. I mean, yeah. she's she's great. I'm talking about like some of the some of the political appointments that were right, made. Right, like when yeah. like when I came in the State Department with Carrie, I mean, admittedly, I helped him with this, but we had the vast majority of assistant secretaries, undersecretaries. Obviously, we had two deputies, one of which was a woman, me. <laughs> um, that wasn't hard. It wasn't hard to find good people to do those right. things, right? But it is harder in these career roles because you're not being, you know, appointed to something. You're coming up through the ranks. Right. So in the Foreign Service, until around the time, you know, like I think it was the early '70s, it, there was this, you weren't allowed to be married as a woman in the Foreign Service. It was like prohibited, right? It's crazy. So anyhow, that's changed, and there's more and more women, um, and it's getting to be closer to parity in terms of the classes that are coming in. But to achieve rank of ambassador, to reach the highest levels of the Foreign Service, it takes a long time, I mean, 20 to 30 years, right, to really go through all these steps. And so the highest levels of the Foreign Service, uh, senior Foreign Service, 
25, 30%. It's hmm. horrible. I mean, I just, I was shocked when I saw this data. So it's something that Secretary Kerry wanted to focus on. It's something mm-hmm. I spent time on, uh, really paying attention to and appreciating that we're bringing cohorts of people in, but it's incumbent upon the organization to make sure they stay in and they succeed, not to help them in ways that, that are somehow privileging them, mm-hmm. but to really say, you know, we need you. We need your voices. We need your leadership here. And there's terrific examples across the State Department. But if you take your eye off that ball, you'll lose people, you know, because it's it is a hard place to work because some of the things we were talking about before, you know, you got to take your family all around the world. If you decide to have a family, you're in dangerous places. You're, you go on unaccompanied tours more and more because of the changing nature of the threat. So I spent a lot of time trying to focus on some of those issues and designing programs that would really be responsive um, and make sure we had the right mentorship and encouragement. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is um, some of the greatest leaders at the department who were career, both foreign and civil service, are women. They're respected across the board, and they're more and more driving the policy at the State Department. And so anybody who's interested in these fields um, should be encouraged by that. And I would, you know, strongly encourage the State Department and other foreign policy agencies to be national security agencies to be paying attention to mm-hmm. that data. Like, look at the data, make it transparent, and be accountable to it um, because it's not accidental. You right. know, it's it's not. And when I think about sitting around the National Security Council table, you know, in my tenure at the State Department, it was either Susan Rice, Avril Haines, or Lisa Monaco right. leading my meetings. Right. 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 And they were and are respected, not because Barack Obama put them in those positions, but because they were badass and and are and are smart and knew their shit and didn't let anything go. And I respect the hell out of all of them. And I didn't care they were women. And I don't think they cared that I was a woman. You know who else didn't care? The chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. That's right. The people who you'd think that's right. Might have a a beef. They never did. It was like the very first time I remember – Ben, ben Rhodes was was sitting at the table. The first time I sat at the principal's table of the National Security Council with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, I was representing the Secretary of State, the head of the CIA, DNI, like whatever. And Ben looked over at me like, hey, you're here. And he wasn't like, hey, you're here and you're a woman. He was right. like, isn't this amazing? Right. Right? Like we're sitting here with some of the badasses of our government doing important work and that's the way it felt in that room. And I really, really hope that that continues going forward because I think that's that's the way we should be making decisions. Me too. So if, transitioning from sort of women inside the State Department to sort of some of the work you guys did for women externally. You know, you along with the State Department Office of, of Global Women's Issues, you did amazing work with women to support women around the globe. How did gender equality become so important at state? Was that something that's been a, a long time priority or is this something you guys work to push? Well, certainly Secretary Clinton really made it a priority. Right, but when you look across the global landscape and you look at development and national security and foreign policy, everybody's kind of coalescing around the importance or the centrality of women and girls. And, you know, I didn't come into this job as the first woman deputy secretary as being like, I'm for women's issues. Mm-hmm. When you look at the data you can't ignore how important it is to focus on the role of women and girls. If women and girls, but women are empowered economically, they provide income to their households. When they have an opportunity to get an education, they can earn an income. Mm -hmm. When they are not forced into early marriage, then they can go to school and, and make money. And when they have the opportunity to understand about family planning, spacing of children, that is not having to have them every single year, Mm -hmm. then they don't have as many children to take care of and they can provide for their families and they can help their families and their villages and their countries be out of the grip of poverty. And so when you look at this data and disproportionately where those factors are, you just have to look at women and girls. You know, I had this um, opportunity to, I had a lot of opportunities to travel and sort of see this in action, but I was in, um, in Papua New Guinea and I was absolutely shocked to learn that 70% of the women in PNG were subject to sexual or physical violence in their 70%. lives. 70%. And it's one of the poorest countries in the world, right? So these things are related. They're not accidental. Right. And I visited a clinic that had seven beds, 
and it was one of three in the country, in the whole country, where women who had been severely physically or sexually uh, violated could seek refuge. And this woman was telling me, you know, she went to the police station and she was dripping in blood. Her her skull had been fractured. She'd been been helper because that's not the culture. You know, like how can you think about a country really being able to escape the type of poverty and and look for opportunity if that's what 70 percent of the women are dealing with? Right. So it doesn't become like, a oh, I think that, you know, equal and human rights for women is important. I mean, I do. But it's just a basic element of how we bring countries up in terms of how they live and how they prosper. Um, so it really it, it begins to focus your attention. And I think, you know, one of the things that's so disconcerting to me about um, President Trump reinstating the global gag rule, which mm-hmm. prohibits family planning organizations from even mentioning from, from funding abortions with their their private non-U.S. government resources, but even to mentioning it as an option, is that he expanded it to a much, much greater pool of funding. So in other words, before it was this this, this pot of funding that was about $500 million that went for family planning. And if any of those organizations talked about abortion, they couldn't get U.S. funding. And now it goes to all global health funding. It's 15 times more funding. And to me, that's not about abortion. That's not about a domestic political issue. Yeah. That's about women being able to have sort of basic human rights that enable them to contribute to their families, their their communities, and ultimately their countries. How do you go from a conversation like you had with that woman at a clinic like that to a conversation with someone from the government in a country like that and not want to kill them? <laughs> right. Let me actually let me it's ask this two parter. I guess if you hear that story like I just did and you're horrified and you want to do something. What, what can people do? You know, in their own so lives? one of the things that I was encouraged by when I was on that visit is that our embassy was taking its relatively limited resources and creating support programs and engagements um, to expand those opportunities, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think that's really important. Um, but the bigger question you have, which I think is a, a more relevant one, is people who feel strongly about that, like, what do they do? You know, yeah. how, do they, how do they really get engaged on these issues? There are so many international NGOs that are focused on uh, addressing the um, addressing poverty issues globally, but really focusing on women and girls. And I think people should look for those and and see if they can support them financially. There's things you can do. You know, there's organizations that do uh, water walks, for example, and they they encourage like young people to walk and raise money for as long as like a, a girl in some country would have to do to get water every day. Like there's lots of ways if that's what you're interested or compelled by mm-hmm. to get engaged. But it's really about raising money. You know, it's mm-hmm. really about saying how can we fund these programs that address some of these core issues and caring about it and seeing that there's a real connection, not just to you because you feel compelled by it, but but in really raising the standards um, for the way people live all around the world. I was in Madagascar and um, there was this little van that did family planning services that, that the USAID helped fund that I went to visit. And it was one of the poorest countries in the entire world. And it was this incredibly poor, I can't describe how poor this little, it was like in a dump, this little community was. And I went and visited with some of the people and this young woman, she was 17. She had a two-year-old kid on her hip and she was pregnant. And I said, what does it mean to you to hear the presentation you heard? You know, what do you think about this? And she said, I had no idea I could control this. Wow. So she got pregnant when she was 14. She was about to have her second child. And she didn't know until that, like, you know, kind of crappy little van in this dump came to say, there's a way to at least space your pregnancies. Mm-hmm. We can't fund those organizations anymore. And to me, that is devastating. And that is a sense of empathy and, and understanding someone's perspective. I don't know that you could possibly realize. I couldn't wrap my head around that someone could think that way unless you met them and had that conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. You have been incredibly gracious with your time. I want to ask you one last question because I was so struck the other day when I saw a photo or a video of, of Secretary Kerry just walking his dog in the Women's March. And I thought about the political career he has had and how bruising and awful it was at times when he was savaged by the Swift Boat veterans. And you've known him for like the entirety of that. I'm just wondering if you have any reflections on on working with him, on what you guys were able to accomplish together mm-hmm. um, and what he should do next. Well, 
you know, I wasn't with him the entirety because he obviously started his career right after he fought in Vietnam. <laughs> right. But I've been with him for a long time. You were time. like a baby. You were, yeah, you were I, was, <laughs> I was born, but not paying attention to politics. But um, – <laughs> But what you know, I've thought about this a little bit because I've been. It, it was it was emotional for the administration to come to an end and mm-hmm. my tenure at state and with Secretary Kerry to come to an end after having begun in 1999 with him and 2007 with Barack Obama. And I thought about Kerry and I thought, you know, to me, he's been so consistent, and I don't think that's how people think about it. That's how I think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he started his public life protesting a war he fought in. He was a pursuer of peace. You know, when I think of all the knocks he's taken and the work that he's done, to me, he just keeps focused on what he wants to do and believing in it. And he is an indefatigable pursuer of peace. He is focused in a very serious way on fighting our enemies. And he doesn't actually care what people think about whether it's the smart political or the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Being with him when he ran for president, you know, like right after he ran, he announced he was going to run for president. He, he was diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. Like two weeks later. I can't remember the exact time frame, but it was really close. And he was like, all right, let's deal with this. And like, let's go. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that was really. And then uh, we went through a bruising campaign and it wasn't always, you know, a positive experience. But I remember in December of 2003, we were at 12 percent in the polls. I remember Ted Kennedy had to come to our like sad little campaign headquarters and like give us a pep talk. Kind of miss him. You know, it was like, I'm sure he was thinking, oh, it'll all be over for you soon. But, you know, (laughs) Um, but we won Iowa and we won won the nomination and we we lost the election. It sucked, you know, it sucked to lose and it sucked. I was sitting in his office the next week, you know, oh man, that's painful. You go from being, you know, almost president to like back, he brushed it off. Like there were a few bad weeks, like it was not pleasant. But then he was like, let's get focused, Mm -hmm. you know? And he said, I really want to focus on climate change. And there were a lot of people around him who said, is that smart? You know, I'm not sure that's the most politically. He wrote a book about it. He, You know, he was like, it became a New York Times bestseller. And of course, other people were talking about climate change, Al Gore, others. But I mean, he was like, this is the issue that matters. He went then, you know, led the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was focused on that. I think he did a great job. And then it was incredibly fun to watch him at the State Department in his element, so engaged on these issues that were so hard. It wasn't always fun, but I mean, seeing him so committed and, you know, people doubting, oh, is it smart to pursue a Middle East peace deal? Is it, you know, are you going to get an agreement with Cyprus? Like, how do you keep going at, you know, Lavrov on Syria, Mm -hmm. you know, but the guy believes in peace and he believes in fighting his enemies. And that's the way I think about him starting his career, and that's the way I think about him ending his public service career. And I got to tell you, I got tears in my eyes when I saw pictures of him with Ben, his dog, and he on his first day. First day. First day <laughs> as a private citizen, 33 years or more out there marching. I'm telling you, like nobody put this on a schedule. He had no schedule. Right. There was no scheduler. He just was like, let's go do this. And I was like, that's my guy. You know, yeah. like I just think he's fantastic. And I don't think he's always, you know, sort of it, it, it's always written that way because it's a lot of complexity and the stuff that he's done. But that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Politics is fickle and unfair. And, yeah. and you have a guy like John Kerry who was attacked as a leader sent a touch. And we just elected a guy who shits on a gold leaf toilet <laughs> on a populist message. But I'm so impressed by the people like him who, in the face of that adversity, just go back to work and like grind it out. Yeah. Because he did a lot of good. And they believe in this country. And they, and this country. they don't believe it's popularity contest. They believe it's about uh, making this world safer and stronger. Heather, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you again. Thank you. It's fun. 